Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for allowing us to come into this place tonight that we might open your word, which is a love letter from God to man, that we might see and understand your love more clearly as it's demonstrated in the gift of your Son, Jesus, which is the Lamb that has come to take away the sin of the world. Lord, we pray that as we deal with this subject tonight, that you would not only inform our minds, but that you would touch and transform our hearts, that we would be drawn closer to Jesus, and that we would be changed into the same image, the image of Christ. Bless us now as we study. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this room and fill our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Our message tonight is entitled, The Lamb of Revelation. And as we jump into this topic, I want to quickly remind us what the primary purpose of prophecy is. I mentioned it earlier today and yesterday that God has brought us to this Bible prophecy seminar, not simply to inform our mind or to satisfy our curiosity. God is not interested in that. He wants to draw us into a closer relationship with Himself. You see, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, is a personal and intimate God, a God that wants to have fellowship and have a relationship with you and me. And we saw that the primary purpose of prophecy, the primary emphasis of revelation, is to reveal not so much a what, but to reveal a who. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not just from Him, but it's of Him. In other words, Christ wants to reveal Himself, His beauty, His love, and His power through the prophecies of this end-time book. You see, friends, the theme of the Bible is Jesus. It is the revelation of Christ. Jesus is the center and the source of salvation. He is the focus and foundation of faith. He is the purpose and the premise of prophecy. He is both the content and the context of our communication. And when we think about the man Jesus, no one has impacted this world like Jesus has. The great teachers of antiquity can't compare with what Jesus has done and the influence he's had on planet Earth. There's an individual by the name of Socrates, a Greek philosopher, who taught for 40 years. Socrates had a student by the name of Plato who taught for 50 years. Plato had a, had a student by the name of Aristotle who taught for 40 years. Aristotle had a student by the name of Alexander the Great who was the one that spread Greek culture and philosophy throughout the whole world that is still, uh, uh, that, that, that still is, uh, is felt in our world today in the university systems of our world. Now, when we think about these great teachers and philosophers of antiquity, and we combine all the years that they taught and compare it with Jesus, who only taught for three and a half years, and yet the influence of Christ has, has transcended the influence combined of the 130 years of these great teachers of antiquity. No one can compare with the impact that Jesus has made in this world. 
Jesus did not paint any pictures. And yet individuals like Raphael and Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci, amongst others, found Jesus to be the source of inspiration for some of the most beautiful paintings that this world has ever seen. Jesus did not paint any poetry. And yet individuals like Dante and Milton and other poets found Jesus as a source of inspiration for some of the most beautiful poetry this world has ever read. Jesus did not compose any music. And yet individuals like Haydn and Handel and Beethoven and Bach, amongst others, reached the highest perfection of their melodies and symphonies and hymns by being inspired by the life of the man Jesus Christ. Jesus did not write any books. And yet there's more books in this world about Jesus than any other topic or individual, period. Jesus did not build any churches. He did not have any monetary backing. In fact, he himself said, I have no place to lay my head. And yet the greatest buildings that were ever built were built to honor and worship the man, Jesus Christ. We find that philosophy and art and literature and music and architecture could not compare with the influence that Jesus had in this world. Though he lived over 2,000 years ago, around that, that time, he is still the central character in history. He lived for only 33 and a half years. And yet his life has divided history from B.C. to A.D. His birth was contrary to all the laws of life, and his death was contrary to all the laws of death. And tonight, friends, we're going to study some prophecies that, that point us to the man, Jesus Christ. And the reason why this is so important to discuss these prophecies is because salvation is not so much found in what we know, but it's found in who we know. And so we can know everything about all the details of prophecy, but if we don't know Jesus, we've missed the main point. And we will be lost with a head full of knowledge, but a heart void of the person, Jesus Christ. I want us to notice how Jesus summarized and distilled what it means to be saved. Please write it down. In the book of John, chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus says, and this is life eternal, that they might, what? Know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. In this passage, Jesus distills to us, he summarizes for us what it means to have eternal life. And it's not found in what we know, but who we know. Eternal life is found in knowing God, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, we can know all things about everything, but if we don't know Christ, we're still lost. We can, t- we, 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 we can know the Word of God, but not know the God of the Word, and that's a tragedy. We can talk about the Antichrist, but unless we know who Jesus Christ is, it doesn't matter if we know who the Antichrist is. We can know who the beast is, but if we don't know who the lamb is, it doesn't make a difference. And so the question I pose to you tonight is this, who is Jesus, and what do you think about him? What is your view of the man Jesus Christ? Well, many people respond to that question in, with different, in different ways. Some people think that Jesus is some fictitious cartoon character that never really existed. Now, many atheists who say this and many who hold this view are speaking from gross ignorance because virtually all modern scholars of antiquity agree that there was a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth that literally existed And this is based upon the empirical evidence of thousands of valid historical documents and archaeological discoveries. If we believe that Jesus never existed, that he was some type of fictitious character, then we have to be ready to say that Alexander the Great neither 
did not exist either. Because there's more evidence, archaeological and manuscript evidence, for the existence of Jesus of Nazareth than there is of Alexander the Great. But no one questions the existence of Alexander the Great, do they? You see, most people are educated enough to realize that this is not true that Jesus was not a fictitious cartoon character, that there was a person by the name of Jesus of Nazareth that literally walked on this world and existed. Most people, however, think that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. He wasn't God. He wasn't the Son of God. He was just a good moral teacher, like, like Confucius or, or Buddha was a good moral teacher. Well, I want to submit to us tonight, friends, that based upon his own claims about himself, and common sense logic, this is probably furthest from the truth. Jesus could not be just a good moral teacher. And here's the reason. Notice what he claimed and what the Bible claims concerning Christ. Jesus claimed to be God, friends. He did not claim to be simply a good moral teacher. He claimed divinity as his own. You can write these scriptures down. If you're not fast enough, don't worry. We have it on the handout tonight. He claimed to be God in John chapter 1 and verse 3. In John 10, verse 30, he said, I and my Father are one. In Titus 2, verse 13, he claims or he is called God. In Matthew 14, 33, he is worshipped as God. In John 1, 4, he is the self-existent one. He has life in himself. In John, excuse me, 1 John 5, 11, he is eternal. In John 8, verse 24 and 58, he is the great I am, the self-existent one. He claimed to be the I am. He claimed divinity as his own. He is omnipotent in Matthew 28, 18. He is omnipresent in Matthew 28, verse 20. And so Jesus, as we see here, we can share a lot more scriptures on this, but I think that's enough. Jesus claimed all the attributes of divinity as his own. And this fact cannot be denied because this was the basis of his trial, condemnation, crucifixion, and death. You see, his death wasn't based upon anything he did because he didn't do anything wrong. Even Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. It wasn't based upon anything he did. His death was based upon who he claimed to be. The Pharisees accused him of blasphemy as a man claiming to be God. And so he was innocent. He did nothing wrong, but they crucified him because he claimed to be God. And so listen, friends, based upon his own claims, Jesus could not be just a good moral teacher. And here's the reason why. Think about it, friends. If he were not God and yet claimed to be God, that would make him a liar. Isn't that right? And no liar can be a good moral teacher. Not only that, if he claimed to be God but was not truly God, he would also be a big hypocrite because he told people to tell the truth. And if he was lying about his own identity, then he wouldn't have been practicing what he preached. And no hypocrite can be a good moral teacher. Isn't that right? Not only would he be a liar and a hypocrite, he would also be a great fool, having caused his own crucifixion and death. And so these characteristics are inconsistent with that of a good moral teacher. That option is farthest from the truth. Throw that out, friends. Jesus is not like Buddha or Confucius, a good moral teacher. He cannot be, friends. When it comes to the man Jesus, you only have three options. How many? <clears throat> and here are the options. Number one, either he's a liar 
claiming to be someone he was not. Either he was a liar, lying about his identity, or he was a lunatic, believing in his own mind that he was someone that he was not. He was a crazy lunatic, thinking he was God, but he was not. So either he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or option number three, he is exactly who he claimed to be. He is the Lord God in the flesh. The only three options, a good moral teacher is not an option. Either he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. Now, all three options are possible, but which one is probable? Oh, friends, think about it. Was Jesus a liar and deceiver? No one has put forth any evidence that Jesus ever lied about anything. In fact, all the evidence points to the truthfulness of his claims. He lived a life of truth and purity, free from all reproach. Even his enemies said, I find no fault in this man. And his life and teachings are inconsistent with that of a liar, so that option is out. Well, well then was he a crazy lunatic, a deluded lunatic, thinking that he was God? Well, friends, think about it. His life and teachings are inconsistent with that of a lunatic because he spoke some of the most profound sayings in history that have stood the test of time. His teachings and sayings have liberated millions and even billions of individuals from mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual bondage. His life and teachings have changed the entire course of this world for good, and that kind of positive impact is beyond the reach of a deluded lunatic. So Jesus could not have been a lunatic, and so if he's not a liar, and if he's not a lunatic, therefore he must be exactly who he says he was. Like his brother James says, he is Jesus Christ, the, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Can you say amen? Jesus was, is the Lord, friends. How do we know this for sure? I mean, friends, think about it. James was the one that wrote this, and James was the brother of Jesus. Now, if anyone really knows this, it's our family. Isn't that right? And James, as the brother, would have, would have, would have corrected it. You know, he, he's, my bro- he's not the Lord. He's just my brother. But even the brother, even his family testified, yes, he is the Lord of glory. Now, friends, how do we know this for sure as we continue tonight? Where is the evidence of the truthfulness of these claims? Not just logic, not just history, but also the testimony of prophecy. You see, God has given the clear and abundant testimony of His prophetic word that points to His Son, Jesus Christ, as the one true Messiah, the Lord, and the Savior of the world. In fact, the Old Testament contains at least 350 messianic prophecies concerning the mission of the Messiah. How many? 350. Now, of the 350 prophecies, 60 of them are major prophecies, and about 290 of them are additional details. Now, when you study these prophecies, all of them were written about 400 years before Jesus came into this world. All of them had to be fulfilled in one person, one man. And almost all the prophecies, Jesus had no control over. So there's no uh, possibility for any manipulation to take place. And friends, when you think about these prophecies, the likeliness of all of these prophecies being fulfilled in one man by accident, by chance, is humanly impossible. In fact, there was a group of American scientists and mathematicians, they were asked to calculate the odds of probability that one man could fulfill just eight, how many? Just eight 
of the 60 major prophecies concerning the Messiah. And it was a bunch of uh, notable scientists like uh, Dr. Peter Stoner and John Madell and Har Harold Hatzler, amongst others, and they were asked to calculate the odds of probability that one person can fulfill just eight of them. And notice, here's the committee's analysis. Here's what Dr. Peter Stoner said. We find the chance that any man could fulfill only eight of the 60 prophecies to be, here's the odds, one out of, what is this number right here? 10 to the 28th power. Now, how much is 10 to the 28th power? Well, here's what it is. It's the number one with 28 zeros coming after it. A million only has six zeros. A billion has nine. A trillion has 12. But 10 to the 28th, I can't even say that number. And so the odds that one person can fulfill eight prophecies is one chance out of this number right here. That's a huge number. You can just basically say it's impossible, humanly impossible. Now, just to put this into perspective, let me illustrate it this way. Let's say, for example, you take 10 to the 28th power of quarters, of coins. 10 to the 28th power of coins is enough to cover the whole state of Texas. Now, is that a small state or is that a big state? Everything's big in Texas, right? 10 to the 28th power of coins would cover the whole state of Texas two feet deep. So what you do is this. You take one of those coins and you color it gold or you, you just put some type of marking on it. And then you fly in a plane over the state of Texas, and randomly throughout that trip, you take that one quarter that is colored gold, and you throw it out amongst all the 10 to the 28th power of quarters. Are you following me? Then you take a man, and you blindfold that man, and you tell that man, you have one chance to find the quarter. Go ahead. One chance. The first time you need to put your hand down and, and you need to pick that quarter that's covering the state of, that, 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 over the state of Texas. What are the odds that that blindfolded man will find that quarter? His first try is the same odds as an individual fulfilling only eight of the 60 major prophecies of the Messiah. And by the way, friends, Jesus not only fulfilled eight, he fulfilled all 60 of the major ones, as well as the 290 minor ones. Can you say amen? amen. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And by the way, uh, we have a handout on your way out that, get, that has a list of all 350 of those prophecies, the Old Testament ones, and how they're fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. And so you'll have fun studying that uh, on your, at home tonight. Amen? You have a list of every single one of those. And so we don't have the time to go through all of them. But one of the most potent and powerful prophecies of the Messiah, and my personal favorite, is this one found in Isaiah 53 and verse 7, where it describes the Messiah in these words, He was oppressed, He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Describing the mission of the Messiah, he would not come as a conquering king, conquering earthly kingdoms, but he would come as a lamb to the slaughter. Now, friends, I love this imagery of Jesus. The imagery of the lamb permeates 
the prophetic book of Revelation. In fact, when you read Revelation, you find the word lamb mentioned 31, excuse me, when you read the New Testament, the word lamb is found 31 times. How many? 27 of the 31 times is found in one book, the book of Revelation. In other words, Revelation permeates with the imagery of the Lamb. And friends, the reason why is simple, is because the Lord of glory is also the Lamb of grace in the book of Revelation. I want to show you some of those 27 examples. If you're quick, you can write them down. In Revelation 5, 6, he is the lamb that is slain. In 5, 8, he is the lamb that is worshipped. In 5, 12, he is the lamb that's worthy. In 6, 16, he is the lamb that's victorious over evil. In 7, 14, he is the lamb that washes us in his blood. In 7, 17, he is the lamb that feeds us. In 12, 11, he is the lamb that gives us victory over Satan. In 14.4, He is the Lamb that leads us. In 15.3, He is the Lamb that is our song. In 17.14, He is the Lamb that wins the battle. In 19.7, He is the Lamb that's married to us. In 21.23, He is the Lamb that is our light. In 22.1, He is the Lamb that quenches our thirst. In 22.3, He is the Lamb that reverses the curse and gives us a blessing in place of it. Friends, Jesus, the Lord of glory, is also the Lamb of grace, highlighted and emphasized in the prophetic book of Revelation. Can you say amen? In other words, the only way we can truly appreciate and understand Revelation is if we study it in context of the Lamb. The Lamb. The Lamb. Now, it's interesting that there is only one other animal in the book of Revelation that is mentioned that many times as the Lamb. As I said, the word Lamb is found 27 times in the book of Revelation. The only other animal that is mentioned that amount of times is the beast, the Antichrist beast. The word lamb is mentioned 27 times in Revelation. The beast is found in 27 verses in Revelation. In other words, when you get an overview of Revelation, which is what we're doing tonight, you find that there's a contrast between Jesus Christ the lamb and the Antichrist beast. You find them mentioned over and over again. There's a contrast. There's a contest. There's a conflict. There's a controversy between the beast and the lamb. And friends, do you remember what an animal represents in prophecy? It represents a king and its kingdom. In other words, what is Revelation all about? A controversy between two kings. A controversy between two kingdoms. The Antichrist beast kingdom and Jesus Christ, the Lamb's kingdom. And whenever you see a contrast, there's a call for a choice to be made. Which kingdom will we be a part of is determined by what king we will accept in our lives. Now, I wish I had the time to show you. There are striking similarities between Jesus Christ, the Lamb, and the Antichrist beast. And the reason why is because the beast, listen carefully, friends, the Antichrist beast, and by the way, we're going to know exactly who the Antichrist is next Saturday evening. We're going to have a whole topic on that. We're going to look at 10 fingerprints, 10 identifying characteristics. No guessing, no speculating, no surmising. You will know without a shadow of a doubt who the Antichrist is. And it's going to be so easy to understand, even a little child will be able to understand it. But that's not tonight's topic. Tonight is more of an overview and a foundation. You see, the beast, friends, is a counterfeit of the lamb. 
And that's the reason why the Bible tells us that in the last days, almost the whole world is going to follow the beast. Why? Not because they want to be evil, but because they believe that it's the Lamb. They believe that this is the true Christ. They have been deceived, friends, because Satan is like a wolf in sheep's clothing. He is a false disciple garbed in the, in the garments of Christ. And his deceptions are so subtle, so, so satanic, friends. But here's the good news. You don't have to worry about the beast as long as you know the lamb. You don't have to worry about the counterfeit as long as you are acquainted with the genuine. Amen? And so victory over the beast is found in knowing the lamb. And so do you know the lamb? Friends, we're going to talk about the beast. We're going to know who it is. But before we talk about the beast, let's make sure we know the lamb. You don't have to be afraid of the Antichrist beast as long as you know the lamb. Why? Because the Bible tells us that perfect love casts out fear from our hearts. And perfect love can only be found in the lamb, Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of time, God sought to save humanity from the power of the beast. How? By keeping us connected with the Lamb. You see, as soon as sin came into the world, God set up a system of salvation to keep the reality of the Lamb's power ever before us. And Revelation points us to that. I want you to notice, in Revelation 13, it describes the Antichrist beast and how the whole world is going to be deceived and wander after the beast. And in the midst of this chapter, we find this beautiful expression, the lamb slain from when? The foundation of the world. In other words, over and over again, as you read Revelation and you talk about how Satan's deceptions are going to be so strong and, and all that he's going to do, God is constantly reminding us of the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Now, we know that the Lamb is Christ, but what does it mean that He was slain from the foundation of the world? Wasn't He slain about 2,000 years ago on the cross? How could He be slain from the foundation of the world? Well, friends, listen. Jesus the Lamb was slain through types, symbols, and ceremonies from the very beginning of time. As soon as there was sin, there was a Savior, friends. As soon as Adam and Eve partook of that fruit and sin and broke God's law, there was a Savior that stepped in and, and died so that man could live. You remember? God said, if you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Why? Not because the fruit was poisonous, but because the wages of sin is death. Man should have died. But instead, the Bible tells us in Genesis that God provided coats of skin to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. You see, sin brought nakedness, but Christ brought coats of skin to cover the nakedness of sin. And friends, in order for there to be a coat of skin, in order for a guilty man to be covered with a coat of skin, an innocent lamb had to die. And that's a symbol of Jesus, the Lamb 
slain from the foundation of the world. And friends, it's interesting that when Jesus died on the cross, he died completely naked. They stripped him of his garment. He died naked so that we could be clothed and covered with his righteousness. Can you say amen? And so as soon as there was sin, there was a Savior, and God was trying to communicate through that slain lamb, I have the power over sin, and the power is in my sacrifice. The innocent dying so that the guilty could live. Amen? So from the beginning, this imagery of the lamb, God used to help people realize that they don't have to die. They can live because of the lamb. And then... We find the story in Genesis, the next chapter, Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. And they understood, Abel understood the significance of the blood of the lamb. As he gave that sacrifice on the altar, the lamb that was slain, God accepted that sacrifice because Abel's worship, listen carefully, friends, Abel's worship was not centered in what he was giving to God, but rather what, what, what God was giving to him. You see, Cain's worship was rejected. Why? Because Cain offered to God the fruits of his own labors. His worship was centered in what he was giving to God. Here is my hard work. There was no fire because we can never save ourselves by our own works. Can you say amen? But Abel's sacrifice, in contrast, was centered not on what he was giving to God. He wasn't giving anything to God, but God was giving him everything through the lamb. The lamb was giving his life, and that worship had fire because it was centered in what God was offering to humanity. Can you say amen? So the power of the lamb was ever before the people of God, God seeking to communicate to humanity that, that I have a remedy for your disease of sin, and it's found in the blood of the lamb. And as we come down through time, we find the touching father-son story of Abraham and Isaac. God called Abraham to sacrifice his beloved promised son Isaac, and Father Abraham could not bring himself to reveal God's will to his son Isaac. Here's the heart of a father seeking to protect his little boy. And finally, as they were walking up Mount Moriah, they had the wood and the knife and the fire. They're walking up, and, and finally the little, the little boy Isaac asked the, the father, and he pointed out the problem. And I want you to notice what Isaac said to Abraham. Genesis 22, 7 and 8. And, Abraham, excuse me, and Isaac spake to Abraham his father. And said, My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac understood that they had everything except the main ingredient, the lamb. They had the fire, the knife, and the wood, but where is the lamb? Where's the lamb? And friends, that's the question of all questions in the Old Testament. Throughout every generation in Old Testament times, people had that question that Isaac asked, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? As, as thousands of animals were slain for the forgiveness of sins, people were wondering, where's the lamb? When is he coming? The true lamb, the true Messiah, where is he? And then Abraham answered, and he said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering God will provide a lamb now Abraham was speaking in faith 
He didn't know how, but he knew that God would. And that's where we get the expression Jehovah Jireh. God provides. It doesn't mean that it doesn't just mean that He's going to provide for the for you to pay your bills. But that contextually, Jehovah Jireh means that God will provide a lamb to die so that humanity could live. God will provide Himself a lamb. He spoke in faith, and they continued to go up Mount Moriah. Every step was taken with painful, agonizing effort, but Abraham moved forward in faith, believing that God would provide a lamb. And finally, on the top of Mount Moriah, Abraham bound his son Isaac, his most precious possession, and he did not withhold from God that which was most precious to him. He was willing to obey because he knew the voice of God. And this is a very dramatic picture. But friends, you know why God said this? It was to be a picture, an object lesson of the Heavenly Father, not withholding his prized possession, his beloved son Jesus, but rather willing to give Jesus to the human race as a substitute in death for the sins of humanity. A beautiful picture of the Father willing to give his son and the son willing to give his life for humanity. And then as Abraham lifted up the knife, at that time, as far as faith was concerned, Isaac was dead as far as faith was concerned. He lifted up the knife, and just before it went down, God spoke from heaven and said, Abraham, lay not your hand upon the lad. Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you trust me and you love me. And thus, Isaac did not have to die. Abraham passed the test. Isaac hops off the altar, and now the picture, the object lesson changes because as Isaac goes free, all of a sudden they looked and they saw a, a ram whose horns were caught in the thicket, horns caught in a thorn bush, and that ram died so that Isaac could live. Now the picture changes, the ram representing Christ and Isaac representing us. We can live because the ram gives its life. Can you say amen? His horns were caught in the thicket. It reminds us of how Jesus, whose head was caught in a crown of thorns, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, generations later, the children of Abraham found themselves in the bitter bondage of Egypt. But God came to liberate them from their oppressor. How was it that the Israelites were able to pass over from bondage into freedom and from slavery into salvation? By what means were they rescued and liberated from the enemy? You remember, friends, they were able to be set free and they were passed by the angel of death because of the blood of the Lamb upon the doorpost of their homes. And as long as the blood, as long as they were under the blood, they were able to pass over from slavery into freedom. In other words, friends, it is the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb, that brings liberation and it brings life over and over again, friends. God, from the foundation of the world, is placing before the minds of humanity the power of the Lamb that deals with the disease of sin. Upon exiting Egypt, God then revealed a more organized system of sacrifice so that his people, you and me, would never forget the power of the Lamb. In the wilderness wandering, here's what God does next. In Exodus 25, verse 8, God says to the people, let them make me a what? 
sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Here the personal, intimate God wants to be close to his people, so he says, make me a sanctuary. And listen, friends, the sanctuary was the center of the sacrificial services. The what services? <clears throat> you see, everything in that sanctuary, that Old Testament tent, everything that happened in that sanctuary revolved around the lamb that was slain. And the purpose of that sanctuary was basically to keep the power of the Lamb's blood ever before us. It was also a compacted prophecy pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And so let me just pause and take some time to explain what this organized system of salvation was all about. You see, friends, the sanctuary was an object lesson. It was a visual aid that God gave to man to teach man about the plan of salvation through types and ceremonies and symbols. And so here's what happened. If we lived in Old Testament times and wanted to be forgiven of sin, forgiveness was found at the sanctuary. We would have to take a lamb or a spotless animal to the sanctuary, and the priests would meet us there in the outer court of the sanctuary. And what happened was this. The sinner would place his hands upon the head of that little innocent animal, and he would confess his sins to God. Symbolically now, the sin is transferred from the sinner to the animal. The, that innocent animal bears the sin of the sinner. And after the sinner's done confessing his sins to God, and the sin is transferred to the animal, then that man, that woman, would have to take a knife and with his own hands would have to cut the throat of that little innocent animal, cutting the juggler vein, causing the blood to flow. The priest was there with the bow that caught all the blood in the bow, and that little animal would die because the wages of sin is death. And friends, this happened every single day. It was actually called the daily service. The what service? And you can read all about it in Leviticus chapter 4. That's what happened. If you wanted to be forgiven in Old Testament times, you had to have faith in the sacrifice of the Lamb. It was an object lesson of Jesus, the innocent one. That Lamb had to be without spot and blemish because in order for Jesus to be our Savior, He had to be without sin. For if He sinned even once, He would have been a sinner and He would have needed a Savior. And so that little innocent animal would die. The blood was shed. And as a result, man was forgiven. And friends, here's the reason why God told his people to slay the lamb. is because he was wanting to get it in our thick skulls that sin is not good. That sin is a terrible thing. You know, Hollywood and the media they glorify sin. Oh, they make it look so innocent. They make it look so attractive and so beautiful and so glamorous. The world makes sin look so good. But friends, this reveals the true nature of sin. It's ugly. It's terrible. It's bloody. It's gory. 
The wages of sin is death. Sin causes so much pain and suffering and death. And that's what God was trying to do when he told the people to slay the lamb. He was trying to put into the heart of humanity a hatred for the sin. When we see just how much it hurts God and ourselves. Do you understand that? And that's what we see when we look at the cross, friends. You look at the cross where the true lamb is slain, you see two things. Number one, you see the ugliness of sin. And number two, you see the beauty of love. At the cross, you see the two most powerful forces in the universe clashing together. You see the power of sin, and you see the power of love. And you also see at the cross, love conquering sin. Can you say amen? And when we truly understand that, it will conquer sin in our own personal experience. At the cross, we see humanity at their worst, crucifying their Creator. But at the same time, at the cross, we see divinity at its best, a love that God has for a world that could care less about Him. And so that is what the slaying of the Lamb in the sanctuary typified, friends. The innocent taking the place of the guilty. Why death? Because the wages of sin is death. Why the shedding of blood? Because Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. And so what happened was this. The, the lamb is, is slain. The priest catches the blood in a little bowl, and then that little innocent animal that is dead is placed upon the altar of sacrifice. The altar of what? And that animal is now consumed by fire at the altar of sacrifice. It's located in the first part of the sanctuary, which is called the outer court. What is it called? And friends, that's the altar of sacrifice. So the lamb is slain here and is consumed by fire. This altar of sacrifice represents the cross where Jesus the lamb was slain and consumed by the fires of sin. Do you understand yes or no? So that's the first article of furniture in the sanctuary the outer court. And so after that, the priest would then take the blood, symbolic of the sin. Symbolic of the what? He would take that blood into the second part of the sanctuary, which is called the holy place. The what place? So he would go into the holy place, and in the holy place, there were three articles of furniture. On the side of the north was the table of showbread, representing Jesus, the bread of life, but also how that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The table of showbread representing feasting upon the Bible, the words of God. Opposite to that was the golden candlestick filled with oil that caused the fire to burn brightly. That candlestick also represents Jesus, the light of the world, but also how that God is calling us to be the light of the world as a witness for Him. And we can only be a witness for Him if we're filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit that calls us to be on fire to burn brightly for Him. So you find Bible study and witnessing side by side because you can't have one without the other. You can't just eat the Word of God and not share it, and the only way you can share it is if you're feasting upon it. Can you say amen? So that's what that represents. And then the third article of furniture in the holy place is the altar of incense representing our prayers ascending to heaven mingled with the sweet incense of the righteousness of Christ. Because our prayers stink 
It must be clothed with Christ's righteousness. That's why when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. It's more than just saying his name. It's praying through his merits, through his righteousness. Are you with me, yes or no? So all of these things are filled with gospel truths. That's why we can't bind to the lie that, that says that many Christians say, oh, forget about the Old Testament. It's not important. It's irrelevant. No, friends. The foundation of the gospel described in the New Testament is the Old Testament sanctuary. It's a compacted prophecy teaching us about the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Are you with me, yes or no? So what happened was this. The lamb is slain at the outer court at the altar, represents the cross. Then the priest would take the blood, symbolic of the sin, the record of the sin, he would take that blood into the second part of the sanctuary, the holy place, and then he would sprinkle the blood upon the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. So he'd come and he would sprinkle the blood, the record of sin, in the holy place. So now the record of that sin is in the sanctuary. It's on the veil. And by the way, friends, do you know what the veil represents? According to Hebrews 10.20, write it down. Hebrews 10.20, the veil represents the flesh of Christ. Another image, image there. This represents the flesh of Christ. The priest sprinkling the blood upon the veil represents how Jesus would take our sins upon himself. And then he would die. Friends, do you remember when Jesus died? Do you remember what happened to the veil in the earthly sanctuary? It was torn from top to bottom. Just as the physical flesh of Jesus was being torn by the piercing of the nails and that Roman whip, so too the veil in the temple was torn, exposing the most holy place, exposing the heart of God for humanity. Oh, my brothers and sisters, it's so beautiful. You realize that when Jesus died, the soldiers speared him in the side. Do you know what came out? Two things, blood and water. Do you know why? Why blood and water? Medical science have shown that when a person experiences an extreme case of mental, emotional, psychological agony, their heart can, can beat so fast and work so hard that it will literally explode in their chest and break because of mental, emotional stress and agony. And when that happens, the red blood cells and the plasma separate. So what happened was this. The soldiers speared Jesus in the side to make sure that he was dead. They speared him in the side, under the ribcage, to the heart, friends. And out of the heart of Christ flowed blood and water, showing that Jesus did not die because of the physical suffering. He died of the mental emotional and psychological agony of being rejected by his children and forsaken by his father. He died of a broken heart, friends. We broke the heart of God. His heart was broken so that yours could be fixed tonight. 
His heart was broken so that yours can be restored. Do you have a broken heart tonight? Jesus can restore it. As long as you give him all the broken pieces, give him all your brokenness, he will restore it. Amen? And so that's what we see here, friends. The, the, the priest sprinkling the blood on the veil, the veil being torn, exposing God's heart, exposing God's love. Beautiful gospel truths in this sanctuary. Oh, are you thankful for Jesus? Praise the Lord. Now, friends, notice what happened next. So the priest would sprinkle the blood on the veil. And by the way, this is foundation for tomorrow night. All right? I'm not going to explain everything tonight. Tomorrow night is, we're going to get to more of it. But he would sprinkle the blood upon the veil. And he did this every day. This was called the daily service. Then there was the third part of the sanctuary called the most holy place. What was it called? And in the most holy place, there was only one article of furniture. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the what? Or it's also called the Ark of the Testament or Testimony. Because in that Ark contained the testimony of God, the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone, the Holy Law of God. Now, friends, this sanctuary, as I mentioned, was God's way of teaching man about the coming Lamb, the Messiah. Notice Paul makes the application in Colossians 2, verse 17. Speaking about the ceremonial laws and the sacrificial services, the apostle says, which are a shadow of what? Things to come, but the body or the substance is of Christ. So all of those ceremonies and sacrifices and symbols were a shadow pointing to the body. Shadow of things to come, that is the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. So it was, a, it was an object lesson. It typified the work of Christ. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Now, as innocent animals were being slain every single day, people had the question that Isaac asked, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? They're slaying all of these thousands upon thousands of animals, and they're waiting for the true lamb, Jesus Christ. Generation after generation passed off the scene, and this urgent question remained unanswered. Where is the lamb? When is he coming? We're waiting for him. Where is the lamb? And finally, in Galatians 4 verse 4, the Bible says that when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. The right time in the prophetic clock, Jesus the lamb steps upon the scene and we're going to find out tomorrow night what that fullness of time was, according to prophecy. He came into this world, and the world knew him not. He spent the first 30 years in the carpenter shop. But after 30 years, Jesus recognized, according to prophecy, that it was time for him to begin his public ministry. And so Jesus set down his hammer. He put aside his saw and he retired the level and he hung up his tool belt and he went down to the river Jordan because there was a young preacher that he wanted to listen to by the name of John. And as Jesus approached the river Jordan, John the Baptist all of a sudden looks and he sees Jesus coming. And when he saw Christ, he saw the desire of ages, the desire of every generation of the past. He saw the answer to the longings of individuals who were wondering, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? He saw he in whom all their hopes had rested upon, the one that they were waiting for for so long. And so when he saw Jesus, he was finally able to answer the question. And notice what he said, behold the lamb 
of God, which takes away the sin of the world. That's the answer to Isaac's question. Isaac was asking, where's the lamb? John answers it. There he is. Amen. Behold, that means look. He's here. There he is. Behold, the lamb. You see, you can summarize the Old Testament with one question. Where's the lamb? And then you can summarize the New Testament with one answer. Behold the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Amen? And so John announced that the Lamb has arrived, the true Lamb. God provided Himself a Lamb in His own Son, Jesus. He came to live the perfect life that we did not live, and then He would die a vicarious death in our place. And through His sacrifice, He brought salvation within reach of all. And when that took place, as I mentioned before, the very moment Jesus died, he, he, just before that, He said, it is finished. And when He died, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now those shadowy types are done away with because the substance has arrived. The substance, the body, which is Jesus Christ. The sanctuary services and the ceremonial laws are finished, fulfilled at the cross as Jesus the Lamb has come to take away the sin of the world. Oh, aren't you thankful for Jesus tonight? Amen. Now listen, listen. The same John the disciple John, that recorded and wrote about this event is the same one that also wrote the book of Revelation, where he also emphasized the Lamb over and over again. Now, here's the next question as we shift gears a little bit. Why does John emphasize the Lamb so many times in Revelation? As we mentioned, 31 times in the New Testament, you find the word Lamb. 27 of those times in Revelation. Why? Here's the reason, friends. Are you listening? The Lamb was the central figure in the sanctuary service. And the entire literary structure of the book of Revelation is built upon the message of the sanctuary. When you study Revelation carefully, you'll find that the literary structure of this book is resting upon the message of the sanctuary. And the reason why the Lamb is mentioned so much is because the Lamb is the central figure in the sanctuary. Now listen, Revelation is filled with sanctuary language. Therefore, the only way you can accurately understand Revelation is if you have a correct understanding of the sanctuary. If you don't know what the sanctuary is about, you're going to come to wrong conclusions when you study Revelation. And unfortunately, many in the Christian world are in wrong conclusions because they have totally ignored the foundation of the book. Friends, what is the most important part of your house? Not the windows or the doors, the foundation. Amen? The literary structure of Revelation is built upon the sanctuary. It's easy for our Western minds to miss it, but for a Jewish mind, they see it over and over again. Let me break it down. I don't have the time to go through the whole book to explain it, but let me share with you that in Revelation, we find multiple series of the number seven. We find the number seven emphasized over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. You find seven churches, seven seals, seven thunders, seven trumpets, seven signs, seven last plagues. Seven is God's favorite number, friends. It represents perfection and completion. You find seven over and over and over again. And when you read Revelation, you see all these different sevens, you'll find something very interesting. 
before every major set of seven, you always find a sanctuary scene that introduces it. Before the seven churches are demonstrated, there's a sanctuary scene that John sees. Before the uh, seven seals, there's a sanctuary scene. Before the seven trumpets, a sanctuary scene. Before the seven plagues, a sanctuary scene that always introduces a series of seven. Are you with me? We don't have the time to go through every one of them, but allow me before we close to give you the first and the last seven and the sanctuary scene that introduces it. And we're going to find something absolutely amazing. The first series of seven in Revelation is the, 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 excuse me, the first major series of seven is the seven churches. But before that's mentioned, Revelation 1, verses 12 and 13, we see a sanctuary scene opening before us. Notice what John saw before the seven churches. And being turned, I saw seven golden what? Candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. And so John before he sees the seven churches, the first sanctuary scene that he sees in Revelation is the Son of Man. Who's that? Jesus. And where is Jesus? Standing before the seven golden candlesticks. Friends, where are the seven golden candlesticks in the sanctuary? It's in the holy place. The what place? Right there is the seven-branch candlestick. And so, listen carefully, friends. When Revelation begins... Jesus is not in the outer court anymore. Where is he in the beginning of the, of the revelation? He is already in the holy place as our high priest. Revelation begins depicting Jesus not in the outer court, but in the holy place as our great high priest. Now, why does revelation begin by depicting Jesus in the holy place? Here's the reason, friends. Because by the time John receives the revelation, Jesus has already died and resurrected and gone back to heaven. You see, the books, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is a description of the ministry of Christ in the outer court of how he came and was sacrificed on the altar of the cross. Isn't that right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John describes the ministry of Jesus in the outer court. But by the time you get to the book of Revelation, Revelation now describes the ministry of Jesus in the holy place and in the most holy place. Because, friends, listen, Jesus not only died for us, but he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so what Revelation does, it expounds upon the work that Christ would do for us in heaven after the cross and the resurrection. If that makes sense, let me hear you say amen. amen. That's why Revelation is so significant, because it actually reveals to us where Jesus is now and specifically what he's doing for us. It's describing the work of Christ in the holy and then in the most holy place. And so that's the first series of seven. The seven churches begins with Jesus in the holy place. He's finished with his work in the outer court. He is now the priest administering the blood in our behalf. And now notice, friends, as we continue, we're going to skip to the last seven. The last major set of seven in Revelation is the seven last plagues. It is the what? Now we're going to 
deal with the details more specifically tomorrow night. But just before the seven last plagues are poured out, John sees another sanctuary scene. And this time, he doesn't see the holy place, but he sees the most holy place. He sees the Ark of the Testament, the most holy place ministry of Christ. Let's read it very quickly. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. We're almost finished. Revelation what chapter? Revelation 15, verses 5 through 7. Notice what it says. This is just before the seven last plagues are poured out. And friends, when those plagues are poured out, it's finished, friends. The world is coming to an end. Jesus is returning. And so just before all hell breaks loose, before the seven plagues are poured out, notice what God wants to show John the Revelator. Revelation 15, verse 5. If you're there, would you please say amen? And after that, I looked and behold, what does John see? I looked and, beh and beheld. The temple of the tabernacle of the what? Testimony in heaven was open. Friends, what is the te te testimony? Remember? The Ark of the Covenant is also called the Ark of the Testimony. And John looks and he sees that in heaven, in the tabernacle, he sees the testimony. So where is he looking into specifically? He is, he is seeing the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And notice what happens. Verse 6, And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in purple and white linen, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels the seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And verse 8, The temple was filled with smoke and the, uh, from the glory of God and from His power, and no man was able to do what? enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Friends, notice, just, listen, listen carefully, just before the seven last plagues are poured out, God shows John and us the most holy place. And here's the reason. The most holy place is our refuge when the plagues are poured out. It is our shelter, friends. And so you don't have to be afraid of the seven last plagues, God is saying, because I've opened before you a door in heaven, the most holy place where Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us as our great high priest and as he begins a special cleansing work in the sanctuary above. We're going to talk about the details and the implications of this more in detail tomorrow night and in future nights. But let me just read these few more verses before we get ready to close. In Psalms 20, verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Friends, is the seven last plagues, is that going to be a time of trouble? Yes. But notice, in that day of trouble, it says, May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. You see, friends, our help is found in the sanctuary where Jesus intercedes for us. And you know, do you know what that word sanctuary means? It means a safe place of rest. You have bird sanctuaries, wildlife sanctuaries. It's a place of refuge, safety, and security. What God is trying to communicate to us through Revelation 
is that, yes, there's going to be seven last plagues, and it sounds scary, but fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't be afraid. There's a sanctuary. There's a safe place for you to abide in. And on that day of trouble, I'm going to send you, my people, help from the sanctuary. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says, Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, in that sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant, that's the throne of grace, friends. Because you know what? That Ark, on top of it, was a solid slab of gold, which was called the mercy seat. What was it called? And that mercy seat is where the Shekinah glory of God sat. That represents the throne of God, friends, the throne of grace. And so it says we can come there boldly. The door is open. We can go, friends. But once the seven last plagues are about to be poured out, remember we read, no man can enter into it. As the angels are coming out to pour out the seven last plagues, you can't get into it. It's going to close soon. But right now, before the plagues are poured out, the door is standing open. Won't you come in? Won't you come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need? And that's what Psalms 91 is all about. You know, Psalms 91 is a psalm for us in the last days. Notice what it says. This is sanctuary language here. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Friends, the secret place of the Most High is the most holy place. It says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him will I trust. And then jumping down to verses 9 through 11, notice what it says. Thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the most high thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For He shall give His angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. In the last days when the plagues are poured out, it's not going to touch the people of God because the people of God by faith are going to be in the sanctuary where Jesus is. It's not so much talking about literally in the sanctuary, but our faith is anchored in there be beyond the veil where Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. And just like in Old Testament times, when the plagues were poured out, the first 10 plagues of Egypt, the people of God were in it but they were not affected by it because they were under the blood. In the same way, in the last days, a thousand shall fall at thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand, plagues falling all around you, but it's not going to touch you because you're under the blood in the most holy place. Amen? I want to be there. How about you? Is this beautiful? It is so deep and so profound, friends. Oh, I wish I had the time to flesh it out more in detail. We'll do that tomorrow and other nights. But as we close, here's my last thing I want to say. Well, what happens to those who refuse to come and abide in the refuge of God's sanctuary? What happens to those who say, no, I don't, I don't want to go there. I, I could care less about that. I, I, I just want to do my own thing. What happens to those people, friends? To them, the coming of Christ is something they're going to run from. In Revelation 6, 16 and 17, it says, The wicked will say, Hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They rejected the Lamb as their Savior, and as a result, he now becomes their judge. 
And they're saying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Oh, friends, if we don't know the Lamb, we have a lot, of be, lot to be afraid of. We're going to run. You see, the citizens of the beast kingdom are going to fall. The world offers no sanctuary or refuge for them. Friends, listen, there's no refuge in having a large bank account. There's no refuge in your degrees and your education. No refuge in your earthly success. No refuge in family or friends or your moral uprightness or your church membership or your head knowledge. There is only refuge in Jesus. Then the citizens of the Lamb's kingdom will stand forever. Revelation is only a scary book for those who choose to follow the beast, but for those who follow the Lamb, it's an exciting book. It points to the Lamb who has a sanctuary for us. And when He comes again, notice what happens to the heavenly sanctuary. In Revelation 21, 22, my last verse, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. No need of a literal sanctuary anymore. Why? Because now we're back into the presence of God Almighty, the Lamb who is our sanctuary. Oh, my friends, as we close tonight, how many of you want the Lamb of Grace? <laughs> Praise God. How many of you want the Lamb of Grace to be your Lord of glory? How many of you want to say, Lord, Help me to understand that most holy place experience. Teach me what it means to go there by faith. That we might sit with Christ in heavenly places, even as we continue our journey here in the wilderness of this world. Do you want that experience? If so, I invite you to bow your heads as we close. Oh, dear Lord, thank you so much for the beauty of your word, for the beauty of the Lamb. Thank you, dear, dear God, that we don't have to be afraid of the end because you have provided a sanctuary, a place of rest, refuge, and relief. Please forgive us, dear God, for not going there more often. Please forgive us for going in and out and back and forth for our inconsistencies. Lord, please teach us what it means to abide in Christ, that Christ may abide in us, what it means to go into the secret place of the Most High, the bedroom chamber of God, the place of ultimate intimacy. Lord, I pray that our faith will be anchored there in the veil. Teach us what this means practically. Bless us as we leave tonight. Bring us back tomorrow at 5 and 7 o'clock as we continue this wonderful journey of truth in your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.